everybody and welcome to more of a comment than a question. I'm Paul Connor. I'm here with my friend and colleague Smriti Mehta. Um, Smriti, how are you? How was your week? Hey, Paul. Um, I'm good. I'm very good. My week is good. It's just been busy, you know, second week of the semester. So kind of, you know, crazy all over the place, just getting into the groove of things. But, you know, I'm very, very happy for Friday as always. How are you? Yeah, pretty good. Uh, went to get a quick COVID test today because I'm oh. hoping to go watch the Super Bowl with some friends on what? Sunday. Yeah, <laughs> but I'm trying. <laughs> I know. I'm trying to be. I know. I'm trying you to be. You as- a new baby. Yeah, I'm trying to be as careful about it as possible. We just got that email today. A couple of Berkeley students have the UK version yeah. of the coronavirus. That, that was That's bound a to little happen. bit, yeah, a little bit scary. But you know, it's a Super Bowl. <laughs> okay, well, but you got the wrong accident to hear about the Super Bowl. <laughs> I'm trying to assimilate, Barry. Yeah. Good um, job. Good job. <laughs> Anyway, Smriti, you should introduce our guest, given that he's already interjecting. Yeah, I should introduce our guest. So we are so honored to have um, with us today Barry Schwartz, um, who's um, Professor Emeritus at Swarthmore College, where he was a professor for um, 45 years. And Barry's now visiting um, faculty at Haas Business School, which is how we know Barry. I think we've mentioned this journal club that, you know, we go to almost every week and Barry's there. And, you know, Barry will often, every time Barry speaks, I'm like, yeah. This sounds like somebody who knows, you know, what's up. Uh, you know, I've heard your, some of your TED Talks. I mean, I've read articles by you. And every time I'm like, okay, yeah, this he's the right person to talk about wisdom. Um, so I was recently, I can't remember why, but I was um, stalking you, Barry, on Google Scholar, I think I told you. And I found this paper um, called Science Scholarship and Intellectual Virtues, um, a guide to what, um, let me make sure I pull it up correctly, a guide to what... Um, higher education should be like, which seems right up my alley because I'm interested in, in education broadly, but also, you know, in higher education because I do hope to be a professor. So I thought it was a great paper and I read it um, and I thought it was, you know, um, really, really nice. Um, so, yeah. Do you want to just like tell us? Well, first, Paul raised an inter- interesting question. Would you uh, do you want to just tell us about your journey and how you ended up at Berkeley, essentially? Sure. So, you know, my journey is probably boring by modern standards. I um, I was in graduate school at Penn. My wife was in graduate school also. She was a year behind me. Um, a job opened up at Swarthmore, which is 20 minutes from Penn. Mm-hmm. So I applied so that if I got it, she would not have to upend her graduate studies. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's the only job I applied for because nice. I could have stayed in graduate school another year. I got it. Mm. I accepted it. <laughs> I spent 45 <laughs> years there. And, uh, you know, both of our kids moved to the West Coast, one to Seattle and one to Berkeley. And after all that time, we decided six hour trips to see the grandchildren mm. were un- intolerable. Right. So we retired and came out here. And initially, I had no expectation. I thought I was just going to retire. And then, thanks to Don Moore, mm-hmm. the saint mm-hmm. of the management program, uh, he invited me to be a participant at, at uh, the business school. And I said yes. So I do various things. I, uh, you know, I teach class every year, but I'm most very low key, very low profile. Mm-hmm. But I'm feeling like I'm still being, some, to some small degree, productive, and mostly, you know, having time to spend with my kids and my grandkids till COVID. Yeah, 
Yeah, that's wonderful. And you're teaching um, this class, but you were very kindly letting me audit um, work, wisdom, and happiness, which I've, yes. you know, it's like a three-hour TED Talk every Wednesday night, and I look forward to them. <laughs> it, they're super fun. Um, but to come to the paper, Barry, I just um, wanted to, yeah, start by talking. This paper essentially talks about what are like there's some intellectual virtues um and your main thesis is that the the goal of an a higher education is not simply to teach facts but to actually you know encourage the the set of intellectual virtues mm -hmm. um in people and so yes. yeah do you yeah uh, so you want me to just talk a little bit about that absolutely the... yes please so 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 there are a couple of points that i want to make as sort of background one is it's not intellectual skills it's intellectual virtues and we, I chose that word not, not accidentally, but deliberately, because part of the point I'm making is that there's moral content to approaching your intellectual life in the right way, with the right aspirations, the right standards. Um, you know, so honesty is a virtue. Mm -hmm. Kindness is a virtue. People tend not to think of, you know, sort of what intellectual rigor as a virtue. Mm. It's a skill. And what I try to suggest in this paper is that it is a virtue and there are real moral consequences to taking it seriously or not taking it seriously. So it's not an accident that I use that word. And the foundation of this is Aristotle. And for Aristotle, everything was a matter of character virtues. Right. Um, and so, uh, so I deliberately introduced that word because it has an implied moral content. And what I want to communicate to people is that we have moral responsibilities in the intellectual world in the same way that we do in the non-intellectual world. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, this paper, I wrote this paper a while ago. I had a piece in the Chronicle of Higher Education even longer ago. And then the world explodes in the last month, and we come to see just how much moral content there is in taking the truth seriously. Right. You know, the world hasn't exploded. The United States has yeah. exploded. But of course, when the United States explodes, the world pays a price. Yeah. So it's this kind of disdain for truth, indifference to truth, that we now see rampant in modern American society that has contributed to making a society essentially ungovernable. And I, you know, there's a there's a wonderful little book written by a philosopher named Harry Frankfurt hmm. called On Bullshit. <laughs> and it's only because he was very prominent that he could get them to publish a book that had that name. Yeah. And his point in the book is to distinguish lying from bullshit. And he says, listen, liars know what's true and they deliberately deviate from what's true. Bullshitters don't care. It might turn out that what they say is true, but it's a matter of no consequence. What they're interested in is truthiness, to use Colbert's word. Yeah. And so plausibility, it doesn't matter whether it's true. Can you tell a story that other people will believe? Now, why would you care about doing that? Because what you're trying to do is advance some agenda, often your own personal agenda, to gain status, power, money, um, which depends on the plausibility of what you have to say to the larger world. And what matters is, is truthiness, not truth. And standards of truth go out the window. Um, and that's the world we currently live in. And I got to say, you know, people on the left are guilty of this 
too. Although I must say that you know, I don't want to create any false equivalence. People on the left do it in a distort the truth in a minor league way in comparison right. to what we're now witnessing. Um, but you know, why was how did Trump get promoted? CNN couldn't get enough of Trump because when Trump was on, everybody watched. <laughs> MSNBC couldn't get enough of Trump. You know, Morning Joe had Trump, yeah. basically Trump had him on speed dial. Anytime Trump wanted to talk to him, he could have the show for as, as many of those three hours as he wanted. Why? Because when Trump was on, people watched. So they, you know, these folks bear a non-trivial amount of responsibility for the free media that Trump got because he brought viewers to the TV or, or listeners to the radio, uh, even though they've dissociated themselves from Trump over the years, they, they, you know, they took Trump to the bank. Yeah. Uh, so it's a deep problem. It's not a superficial problem and it's a pervasive problem. It's not just conspiracy theory lunatics on the right, which is the manifestation that we're currently paying attention to. It really is a deep problem. Yeah. And that's what I wrote the paper about. Yeah. And I agree. I agree. It's a deep problem. And since we're, you know, the paper is about higher education, I certainly think that this distinction between lying and bullshitting is something that we need to probably pay more attention to in academia. Because I do think that the, you know, I, I feel like when you're, when you reach a certain amount of intelligence, the, you know, it's probably really easy to bullshit yourself into believing things, right? And it becomes, you know, even easier to, you know, bullshit in a way that makes other people believe things. I mean, you yeah. hear it all the time. People don't research. It's They'll be researching something, but then some grant comes up that has nothing to do with what they're doing, but they will sort of spin what they're doing in a way that is applicable to that, where, where they've now taken that position from somebody else that really does care about those topics. So I'm curious, yeah. like, what you, like, how do you, how can we distinguish between lying and bullshit well so the, here's the what i think the reason why i think this is so hard is that from the perspective of you know empirical sciences like the one we are supposedly in there are clear-cut unambiguous standards for assessing what's true and you use those standards and find something out or not. But if you don't use those standards, then any claim you make is suspect. Any claim you make, some people might say, is bullshit. So do you do it the right way? Uh, you know, and the right way is sort of defined by the replication police. So as people get more and more sophisticated about ways in which you can massage data mm -hmm. and to paint a picture, the right way changes. But if you've done it the right way, you found a true fact. And if not, then not. The problem with that is that it seems to me that people get an enormous amount of real knowledge from narrative, which is essentially N equals one. Right. So it's not enough to say, it's not, it's not differentiated enough to say, if you use the appropriate methods of the discipline, with um, you know 300 people in each relevant group so that you've got sufficient statistical power, then I trust what you say and otherwise I don't. Because sometimes what you need to do is embed the finding in, a, in some sort of a context that makes the finding meaningful. And that will often mean telling a story about an individual case. So, so I, think, I think standards of what's true need to be flexible 
And what's as important as meeting those standards is having the right intentions. The problem with what we're now living with is that people don't care about whether it's true. If I care about whether the story I tell you is true and I get it wrong, Mistakes happen all the time in science. It's one mistake after another. Mm-hmm. That's, the, that's how science, science progresses. But if I'm indifferent to truth, well, then all bets are off about how uh, you know, uh, our understanding in a given domain proceeds. You have to assume that I have the best intentions right. of discovering and communicating the truth. And you reasonably read it and think about it and criticize it. And in that way, we make progress. And that's true whether my methods are, re- are less rigorous or more rigorous. They're being presented as the best, the closest I can get to the truth. And you're using your critical faculties to evaluate whether I've gotten close enough for you to share this story with somebody else. You know, and yes, of course, I'm going to be wrong some of the time. And that's just inevitable. But if, if the intention is gone, then then we're lost. And that's, I think, that's why, again, I call them intellectual virtues. What matters is not just that you know the right rules to follow, but that you are, you're doing it for the right reason. You have to, as I say in the paper, you have to love the truth. Right. Even if the truth doesn't love you back, <laughs> even if the truth, the thing you find out, is not going to get you tenure, right. even if the thing you find out is going to support the arguments of your political opponents, mm-hmm. right? I mean, imagine, suppose IQ was genetic. Is that logically impossible, that a huge amount of the variance in, in intelligence is genetic? It's certainly not logically impossible. Mm-hmm. It may not be true, but it could be true. Mm-hmm. So suppose somebody does this study and it's, you know, just immaculately done and concludes that 60% of the variance in IQ is, uh, is heritable. Well, you don't like that conclusion, and you might say, well, what can we do with that other 40%? But, um, but denying it because you don't like it is no good either. Sometimes the truth smacks us in the face, and it's a truth we wish wasn't a truth. So you have to be committed to loving the truth because you will find a way to use it to help create a future society that you think will be more just, humane, and so on than the current one, even if sometimes the truths are, in, are more than a little inconvenient. Yeah. So that's, that's, again, why I think it's essential that we think about these virtues as moral, moral as virtues and not merely as skills. You know, knowing how to do multiple regressions doesn't mean you're going to do multiple regressions in the service of the right objectives. Right. Yeah. And so before I do want to keep talking about the love of truth, but I just want to list out the different virtues that you have. Um, So there's love of truth, fair mindedness, perseverance, um, courage, perspective taking and empathy is one. And then lastly is um, wisdom, practical wisdom. Yeah. You you started with um, love of truth. uh, Yes. And I... I thought it was a, as a, a great section. There's a quite an interesting section there where you talk about ideas about relativity, mm-hmm. um, and you sort of make an argument for uh, no. <laughs> there's one truth. Uh, different perspectives can help us get there. Um, maybe like explain to our listeners sure. that so section. So this is quite interesting. Uh, you know, I've discovered, much to my horror, that when you're talking to undergraduates and you throw out the name Thomas Kuhn, 
They have no idea who you're talking about. You know, this was a, his book, The Structure of Scientific Revolutions, was earth-shaking in its significance when I was your age uh, and continued to be. But over time, you know, I think the idea behind it has been retained, but the sort of substance that gave rise to the idea has vanished. So, so he wrote this book, um, The Structure of Scientific Revolutions, and his training was in physics and mathematics, you know, the natural sciences, the hard sciences. And his argument was that um, there is no logic to the progression of scientific theories. You have a theory, you do everything in your power to preserve it, you invent all kinds of exceptions and complexities so that you can cling to the theory, and it's never the case that theories eventually get replaced because of data. Hmm. You know, it's a, it's a kind of power struggle within a discipline, and eventually there's a dramatic change in the theoretical framework, and since every piece of data we look at is filtered by the theory we're using to look at it, once the theory changes, everything changes. So, so that is why real progress in science is revolutionary, not evolutionary. Mm-hmm. So, and often, you know, the people who are the dominant players in a given scientific discipline exert an enormous amount of influence because of their social and political power. So there's nothing rational about it, right. a lot of people concluded. And this led people to the view that it's just as in every other domain of life, it's all about power. People who have power get to impose their views on everybody else, mm-hmm. and then we just succumb to that. And science is not pristine. It really is a struggle for power on the part of a subset of the population. And so everything is relative. There is no standard for truth. If I'm in power, I get to say what truth is. I get out of power. Someone else gets to say what truth is. We're just pretending that there are standards that can be applied independent of our interests. And that became a really a dominant view that truth is fundamentally relative, relative to perspective. And people with power get to impose their perspectives on everybody else for you know a good part of the 70s. And it really gave rise, or at least in my view, it helped underwrite a lot of the arguing that went on about what should be in the canon in teaching literature and mm-hmm. history. Whose history should be taught? Whose literature should be taught? Who said Shakespeare and Milton and Keats were the great writers mm-hmm. uh, of literature? You know, you're just imposing your standards on me. There's no, there's, there's nothing you can appeal to to defend those standards. Mm-hmm. So let my stuff in too. And this was a very reasonable effort, you know, one that I applauded. But then what you started to hear was, well, you have your truth and I have my truth. This is my truth. Growing up as a first generation uh, 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 native born American, this is my, you know, child of immigrants, this is my truth. Mm -hmm. And you can't, you can't argue with me. This is my truth. And as Paul was saying, this, I think, that, that word my is a catastrophe. It isn't your truth. It's the truth. And what my, the perspective that I bring as a first-generation native-born American forces you to change your understanding of what's true because it forces you to realize that your conception was too narrow. 
So what we're trying to build is a sort of comprehensive understanding of what's true that includes the various different life experiences and perspectives that people coming from different places have. Once I say it's my truth, it becomes unassailable. Who are you to tell me that I'm wrong? It's my truth. You can't tell me I'm wrong. This is the way the world is for me. And you have yours. And so the, the point here is that there were really good imp impulses that led to this, you know, sort of breaking the shackles of, you know, incredibly dominant white male um, standards mm -hmm. of everything to let other voices and other perspectives in. And all of that was good. Mm -hmm. But it went just a little bit too far because what happened is not only an acknowledgement that our perspective was limited, but also a sense that there was no perspective we could take that would be inclusive and could eventually lead to an understanding of what the truth is. And Kuhn, same thing happened to Kuhn. When Kuhn saw how his work was being used, he was horrified mm -hmm. because he never meant to suggest that it was arbitrary and, and just about power. What he meant to suggest is that theories don't change in this logical, algorithmic, mechanistic way. And the reason is we have very various criteria for what makes a good theory. How fruitful is it? How simple is it? How accurate is it? You know, we care about different things. Reasonable people can assign different values to these different things. I may think that fruitfulness, you know, generating research is more important than accuracy. You may think that accuracy is more important than fruitfulness. So we have a conversation. And reasonable people can disagree about how well any particular theory meets the standards of accuracy and meets the standards of fruitfulness. And so practitioners, experts, can argue with one another about which how much weight to give these different criteria for goodness of a theory and how good a particular theory is on these attributes. And eventually there's a kind of coalescence around a theory, but it's not something that's simply derivable from a set of, um, of unambiguous uh, criteria. It's something that gets hashed out by practitioners. And it seems to me that this is the right way to understand what truth means. You just have to make sure that everybody is invited into the conversation, but your aspiration should be to get to the bottom of things, not to the bottom of your things or my things, but to the bottom of things. And uh, and we kind of lost that. And I don't think it's a simple move from there to uh, fantasies about uh, left-wing, uh, um, what, 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 what do left-wingers do? They they have sex with little kids and then they cook them and eat them. <laughs> the the cabal of, yeah. Um, so, you know, I don't here. think you go straight from it's my truth to all these in completely, in, and, you know, Jewish, European Jews with lasers <laughs> causing causing the fires in right. California. I must say that made that one made me feel good because I figured I probably know these people and I can call <laughs> them up and tell them to stop. But... So it's well, they, you know it's many steps from. I think I think you're overestimating how many reasonable people there are these days, Barry. You're saying reasonable people. Well, then yeah. our job, and you and you mentioned this introducing me. Then our job is to figure out what does it take to make people reasonable. Right. It is much more important to teach people how to think about things critically oh, than it is to teach them 
calculus for god's sakes but don't you think they're you know, tied like math to me math has always seemed like it's the reasoning right it's logical reasoning stripped to its very you know fun. it is but the question is is it self-contained or does it extend to the rest of life so you you know you may have terrific logical skills analytical skills when it comes to doing math problems but you just don't think any of that is relevant outside of your uh, math worksheets so Barry, I'm interested in your perspective on how do you inculcate a love of truth? So I think you acknowledge in your paper that most social scientists are coming from a place of wanting to make some change in the world, right? Like our morality is guiding our choice of questions, morality sort of it guides us to this field our values changes we want to see people yeah. people we want to help so i think smriti and i sort of both have the experience that uh, we 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 just come across a lot of social scientists who really uh are more concerned about the changes they want to make in the world than the truth necessarily yeah. uh and and i think we I see it probably more in the social department than at Haas. I think you guys are pretty good there at Haas. I get the feeling, but I, yeah. So what? I mean, I my my very vague understanding of virtue ethics is that virtues are these things that we can sort of um, nurture uh, and cultivate. Uh, so, how would you, how, if you have a student who's really like? an activist and they've already kind of decided what is the truth and they're just running study after study until they find the results that mm -hmm. confirm what they already believe that they can go out in the world and say ha look i found it i proved it you all have to <laughs> now like implement my preferred policy now how do you take that person and bring them a bit back towards more of a love of truth yeah uh, that's a great question. I wish I had a simple answer for you. I, I, I don't think that you teach this didactically. You know, a class on intellectual virtues is not going to make people intellectually virtuous. You have to, um, you mostly have to model it. Interesting. You have to live your life that way. You know, one point I sometimes make when I give talks is that teachers are always teaching and students are always watching. Right. It's not just during the lecture, it's everything. And so if you, if you embody this in your own intellectual life, if you, you know, reluctantly accept a result that you wish wasn't true and ask, how, what, how, what can we make of this? What, how can we make this productive and useful even though we wish the world wasn't this way, it looks like it is this way, you know, um, then that's what your students get to see is the appropriate behavior of serious, truth-loving intellectuals. Other than that, the tempt and let me say, the temptation's overwhelming. You see this a lot. I, I, I've, been, I've been watching what the, the scientists are saying about COVID. Mm. You know, these are the people we should trust. Right. Now, it's naive to say, well, I'm just going to tell them the truth about the vaccines and how effective they are and how challenging it is that there are new strains and what that implies about wearing masks and keeping distance. I'm just going to give them the science. Well, you could do that, but 
What do you believe as a scientist? You believe that people in the U.S. are still too casual about behavioral practices that keep one another safe. And so you, whatever you do, you don't want to minimize the danger. You don't want people to relax. It's premature to relax. And so you don't lie to them about the danger, but you kind of spin the truth in a way that does nothing to discourage them from continuing to behave responsibly uh, in public Situ in public circumstances, and you promulgate rules, guidelines, if you're the CDC, that forces, you know, bars and restaurants to act more responsibly than they otherwise might. N nothing's a lie, but there's a lot of ways to tell the truth. <laughs> and so having uh, two objectives, one is what what is the story with COVID and its variants? And the other is, what do people need to hear? Those are they, those may compete. That's just the way life is, you know. It, 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 the same thing is true, I'm sure, with global warming. You wanna, you don't want to deviate from the truth, but you also don't want people to relax about something that you think is, a, you know, an existential crisis. So what are the limits within which your interpretation is acceptable and outside of which you are now a distorter? And even though your motives are good, you're really no, no different from the people who are inventing conspiracies. I don't know how to answer that. Uh, at the very least, if there's a, a weight on you imposed by your love of truth, it may rein you in so that while there are some things you will say, to help people make the right decisions. There's a limit to what you will say to help people make the right decisions. So there at least is a tension between the truth as you understand it and what you think people need to hear so that they can protect themselves and the people they love. That's, I don't know any way out of that problem. And that's why wisdom is one of the intellectual virtues because it is frequently the case that good virtuous aspirations are in conflict. The hard things in life, this came up in the class I taught um, on Wednesday, the hard decisions we face in life are not decisions between good and evil, they're decisions between good and good. Mm. And life is in, invariably in, involves trade-offs among good things. And you need to figure out how to make those trade-offs. Yeah. And I don't think there's a formula. I think you basically have to use your judgment. Uh, yeah. I mean, in a given time, with a given problem, this is the trade-off that I think is the right trade-off to make. And you're going to be wrong about that sometimes. Yeah, I mean, the vaccine is a great example, right? Who do we give it to? It's a Who do we give it exactly, to? Exactly, right. Who, who do we give it to first? Um, you know, I mean, the, the new head of CDC, who seems to have the most impeccable, both scientific and in every way, credentials, you know, moral credentials, she made this statement that schools should open. Mm. The data say that you are less likely to get COVID in school than you are just walking on the street. Mm. Being in school is one of the safest places. So teachers do not want to go back to classrooms no. until they get vaccinated. They want to be sort of priority just below medical workers. Mm. Give us the shots and then we'll, we'll teach the kids. Without the shots, we'll stay remote. The data suggests 
that that's not necessary. That's excessively cautious. Right. The, the transmission rate is extremely low in school settings. As long as the schools have been modified, the classrooms are smaller, kids are wearing masks, ventilation's been improved, and yada, yada, yada. Mm -hmm. So she got incredible shit for saying this. Yeah. You know, and it's a legitimate concern on the teacher's part. You know, some of them have comorbidities. Oh, some of them are of 16, older, not, yeah. not 28. Uh, and this is their chance to, you know, to get moved ahead of the line. Right. If they if they simply accept the importance of being in the classroom, they've given up this leverage that they now have and they're reluctant to give it up. Yeah. So, yes, uh, everything about the vaccine is shot through with choices among good things. Right. Yeah. Uh, you know, should we be giving it to the people who are most vulnerable? Should we be giving it the vaccine to the people who are most likely to transmit? Yeah. Those are almost non-overlapping yeah. categories. Most of the transmission is by people from 20 to 49 years old right. who will be the last in line to get vaccines. Yeah. You know, they're the you guys are the irresponsible ones. <laughs> I I want to come back to this wisdom thing because I, uh, yeah, the, I I uh, well I'll, I won't put all my cards on the table just yet, but I I do have uh, a harder question to ask you about that later. But let's keep going through the virtues because the next one is fair-mindedness. Yes, so fair-mindedness. That's that's the ver the way I. In this paper, the way I discussed humility, hmm. you know, we, we, you know, people who do psychology, cognitive psychology, social psychology know about this. We really don't evaluate data fairly. You know, we show right, confirmation right. bias. Right. We show confirmation bias even when we don't care about whether the hypothesis in question is true. When we actually do care, then we show it on steroids. <laughs> yeah. And so, what does it take to be fair? to all the data that might be relevant to evaluating a hypothesis. This is true in the laboratory, but it's also true with an analysis of what's going on among the political parties. It's true for an analysis of, you know, sort of deep underlying processes when you're trying to make sense of history in a given part of the world. So this is a pervasive problem. And we know from psychological research that telling yourself to be fair does not get you very far. <laughs> So how can you be fair-minded? There are a few tricks, you know, like one that Don likes to talk, more likes to talk about is imagine the opposite. Suppose the opposite was true. What would happen? Uh, I think a more generalized version of that is don't just say something, sit there. That is, give yourself, give all these critical faculties that you have cultivated a chance to work on the input. Right. And maybe your reflective self will come to a different conclusion from what your intuitive self concludes. Right. That's why I don't like Another, Twitter. Yeah. I've never heard well, that I, before. It, I love that. I'm going to get what? that. I'm going to get a tattoo of that. Don't just say don't, something. Don't sit just there. say something. I, sit there. That's, <laughs> I, so I, I mean, really need that advice. It's the, it's the inversion of the, st mm. the standard line is don't just sit there, do yeah, something. Yeah, exactly. Right. You know, don't just sit there it. and complain, do something. And I think, you know, uh, Je uh, uh, Jennifer Eberhardt at Stanford, who studies implicit bias, right. she has come, I think, somewhat sadly to the conclusion that you can't eliminate implicit bias. 
that your strategy really needs to be to stop people from acting on it so that in general, don't just do something, sit there, gives you a chance to use whatever reflective tools you have to take in what the implicit system, the automatic system is telling you and, and, and assess it. Mm-hmm. You know, these implicit biases are the product of a lifetime mm-hmm. living in a particular culture and they're really hard to undo because we, you know, they, it happens so fast and so automatically. So instead, you got to build structural uh, processes that prevent people from acting on them too like quickly a, and too often. So I think of, that is not a bad. There's another technique that that seems to be work. It's it takes it works. It takes advantage of what's called the illusion of explanatory depth. Hmm. So you ask people. Do you know how a t- flush toilet works? And almost everybody says yes. And then you say, okay, would you write down how a flush toilet works? And of course, virtually nobody knows. <laughs> <laughs> and what happens when you ask that second question is that it makes people humble about the answer they gave to the first question. Hmm. And so, you know, you can ask, what does a $2 trillion stimulus do to an economy? Uh, will will a two trillion dollar stimulus um, uh, boost the economy in a productive way? Mm-hmm. And people say yes, it will, or no, it won't. And then you say, well, how will that happen? And of course, almost everybody has no idea how to answer that question. And so what that does is it makes you a little bit less certain that the answer you gave to the first question is well found is based on anything that's well founded so it makes you open to um, the possibility that you might be wrong and i think the best way to um, protect yourself against this um, uh, various versions of confirmation bias is to work collaboratively with people who come at the problem from a perspective other than your own it is much harder for you to be three different people and have each of these people inside you control for the biases of the other. It is much harder to do that than it is to actually have a group of three different people. Yeah. Uh, and it's well, especially true if they're from different disciplines. I spent most of my career working with people in philosophy and political science, and and it made all the difference in the world. There was just no issue that we discussed where their perspective wasn't completely different from mine when we started. Mm-hmm. And and they introduced things I would never have thought about based on my training in psychology. And I, I had a similar effect on them. Uh, so silos are bad. Yeah, that's if sounds... your aim is to get to the truth. Definitely sounds like you're making an argument for viewpoint diversity there. I want to to ask you um you mentioned according to jonathan height uh when making moral judgments we use reason more as a lawyer who is making a case than a judge who is deciding one oh okay i think i read that wrong i think i originally read it as him saying that's what we should do no 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 (laughs) no, no. like that is we we think we use reason as as a judge judge, but no but in fact we use reason as a lawyer trying to get our clients off and and so the (laughs) intuition gives us the answer to this vexing moral question and then we use all of our rational faculties to defend the answer 
Mm-hmm. Although what we are, we deceive ourselves into thinking that we're using these ra- right. rational faculties yeah. to figure out the answer. Like motivated mm-hmm. reasoning, yeah. Motivated reasoning. And, and again, what makes it so challenging is that these intuitions are intuitions, mm-hmm. which means we don't have access to the pr- introspective access to the processes that give rise to them. And so we can't screw. How did I how did I come to this view about how vaccines should be distributed? I don't know. But if you ask me, I wouldn't have any trouble because I'm a clever person mm-hmm. telling you how I came to that view. It's just that the story I told you might have actually have nothing to do right. with how I actually came to that view. I think they should give vaccines to old people first because I'm an old person, <laughs> but I'm not. Uh, I'm going to give you a different rationale than that. You, well, I, I think as an case, educator, you can. I think you can get ahead of the line, Barry. I think you can claim that. <laughs> Yeah. Even though I'm educating um, by Zoom? Yeah, I think so. <laughs> I've heard that happening. Yeah. I think the statistic is like 93% of COVID deaths are people over 80 or something like that, mm-hmm. or people over 60. I, I don't know the exact numbers, but it's... It's, it's a very it's, high it's number. It's super tough. So I, I think, yeah, I, I definitely think all people should get it. This is the only ASAP. blessed thing about mm-hmm. COVID is that it does not attack kids. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, so at least the people who are most vulnerable are people who are losing fewer years of life than with other pandemics that have happened in the past. Although, I mean, how it's affecting children, like who knows, right? Maybe there might be who some, knows? yeah, if, yeah, there might be some consequences of like women who got it when they were pregnant or something. Like we might not even know until much later. It's going to take a long, a long time. time to figure that out. Yeah. We're going to, it's going to take a long time right. to figure out the social and psychological Absolutely. impact of spending a year or yeah. a year and a half in social, in essentially social isolation. Absolutely. I you mean, know, it, kids are resilient and blah, 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 but who knows what this is going to, yeah. what effects this is going to have uh, five years down right. the road. Or the fact that, I mean, now that everybody's walking with half their face covered, what it's going to do to yeah. how they read social cues. And this is also an interesting thing. You know, I realize this as my wife and I take walks in the neighborhood. Mm-hmm. When I smile at yeah. somebody who's, who's kind enough to step off the sidewalk into the street so that we're not too close, right. that person doesn't no, know. No, I'm no, smiling. I know. It happens to me all the time. You know, I know I'm smiling. I know I'm saying thank you for your thoughtfulness, but they don't know right. that. Yeah. So we've actually, my wife and I have gotten in the habit of being more verbal. Yeah, I'll just but say hi. But it took a while yeah, right. yep. for us to realize how opaque our facial expressions were. Yeah. Well, it needs to be a real smile. It needs to be a Duchenne smile, right? Because otherwise... But it doesn't matter what kind of smile it is when you've got the damn mask on. Well, I can see your eyes. So as long as your eyes... As long as your eyes are crinkling the right way. All right. Um, (laughs) The next virtue, perseverance. Finding the truth is hard. You can't expect instant gratification. So that's why I think perseverance is important. Yeah. You can choose your problems so that they have easy solutions, but the problems that are most important for us to investigate and solve are not easy problems. So you have to be willing to pick yourself up after a failure and dust yourself off and figure out a better way to get at the at the problem. Right. And I think we 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 have increasingly moved into a kind of sh- immediate gratification mode. And there's a lot about the sort of material um, incentive structure of life in the academic world. It does not pay off 
for things that take a long time. Right. Uh, you know, you, you need to have an a uh, publication list as long as your arm, and uh, studies that take three years to do are not going to get you good jobs, and they're not going to get you uh, tenure. So you start choosing your problems for the wrong reasons. Right. Uh, so it's worth thinking about what's the incentive structure in academic disciplines, yeah. and so is it encouraging the work we want to encourage, or is it encouraging something else? So you say at the moment we're cultivating the opposite, worried yes. that our students suffer from collective ADD and will give us bad course ratings if we make them struggle. We're dumbing down our courses to cater to shorter attention spans. We assign a TED talk instead of a journal article, a popular book instead of a scholarly one. Actually, in the pod I listened to this afternoon that you were on, you said something that I found really interesting, which is kind of related to this. You said that um, you believe students are becoming less and less resilient. Mm. I, that too, yes. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about that. Um, what makes what makes you think that... Um, what, what in, your, in your personal experience, what has led you to say that? They react extremely dramatically disproportionately dramatically to bad news and bad news can be a B when, on a paper when they were hoping for an A and if you do give them a B you have to make sure that you surround that B with all kinds of encouraging positive feedback so that they'll believe that next time if they just tweak it a little bit next time it'll be an A um, and, uh, you know this, 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 this cartoon that every kid in soccer club gets a trophy. Mm, yeah. uh, you know, everybody has to be the best at something. And so what ends up happening is that you completely dilute the significance of any of these sorts of acknowledgments. And I, I have a feeling that kids are fragile, but I don't think this is inherent in kids. I think you teach people to be resilient by occasionally making sure they fall on their asses. Uh, you teach people to have sustained attention by requiring them to have sustained attention. Catering to short attention spans is not going to suddenly make them able to pay attention to something hard for long periods of time. You got to push kids to, to uh, work on a, an article for longer than they think. And yes, they'll give you a low course evaluation. And if you only sign them a TED talk, they would love you. Uh, which again, it says something about the incentive structure in the field. If your success or failure depends on the course evaluations that you get, it takes a, an, almost an iron will to resist assigning pleasant, short, easy to assimilate materials instead of, you know, stuff that has to be struggled with. Um, you're not going to, if you're going to ask people five years after they finish their educations, how much they learn from various things, that's a whole different story. But if all you're doing is having them tick boxes on the last day of class, they're basically, you know, you're asking how good was this course and they're basically answering how much fun was this course. So only a fool would would really be demanding. Now, some teachers get away with really being demanding and challenging, and I think in some disciplines, the norm is that this, this shit is hard, 
and don't expect it to be easy. You know, I think everyone who takes microeconomics anywhere expects that this will be the worst experience mm. of their life. Or mm. organic so chemistry. Or organic <laughs> chemistry. Depend. Yeah, that's a, that's the sort of a functional equivalent. There is mm. there, every discipline has a course that is going to be the worst experience of your life, and so you can get away with it with being demanding there. Um, but you can't, in general, get away with being demanding as an individual or as a discipline, as long as the metrics that are being used to evaluate you are the wrong metrics, and they mostly are. Yeah, but I mean, I guess that brings the question of, okay, maybe the incentives are wrong, but um, I think I had this conversation with you, like, um, what I would like have liked to see on this list is also excellence, which I think was sort of baked into the way you're framing the whole paper, um, are you doing, you know, doing things well for the sake of it, which, you know, like, if... If if you really cared about teaching students well, then it wouldn't matter how they're evaluating you, right? Um, like, it wouldn't really matter to you that they're giving you bad evaluations if you're like, hey, I mm-hmm. know that at the end of the day, this will benefit you and I will do it despite the fact that you will hate me for it, right? Good teachers are always usually not the nicest ones, right? But how, right. But how do we, especially in, you know, higher education now, it doesn't seem like that's the goal, right? To me, it doesn't seem like the goal is to you know, raise a generation of good moral citizens. It's mainly to, you know, do my, get my evaluations, keep my job, you know, do my research and yeah. No, no, I think that's right. Uh, you know, I think we're, we're, we're overstating, um, but I think almost all of the pressure is in the wrong direction. Mm-hmm. Uh, you want your students to like you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because if your students like you, they will say nice things about you. And so it's it's really an interesting dynamic. You know, it seems to me right that universities should hold professors accountable for their classroom performance. Mm-hmm. And prestigious universities like Berkeley were indifferent, you know, for years indifferent. Yeah. It was, you know, what how are your grants and publications and your status in your field? The undergraduates are just paying the bills. Right. So it is an improvement to make um, to make uh, faculty members yeah. accountable. Then the question is, well, how do you hold them accountable? What do you measure? Right. And the answer that has evolved is you give students course evaluations. You let the students give you information about the quality of instruction. Mm-hmm. There are several things wrong with this. First, you're asking people at a point when they are where they are in no position to judge how valuable course was. You can't tell on the last day of class. All you can say on the last day of class is whether you enjoyed Enjoyed it it or not. Even if you say, I learned a lot, you may be wrong. And it may turn out three years from now, you will discover that actually you learned very little. So you're asking people when they're not in a position to really answer. Mm. Uh, And all of the premiums are on being entertaining, making sure that students in the class have a good time. So now, if you decide your mission is to help these people find the truth, not just in this domain, but in general, develop their critical faculties so that they will be be better able to find the truth in general, then you're going to, this is going to be at at odds with the things you have to do to be successful. Now, it's hard enough to know how to nurture truth-loving and truth-seeking in students without it having to, without it costing you to pursue that objective yeah. 
and all of this is in the service of a good motive, which is to hold faculty members accountable for how they teach. Right? Mm-hmm. That's a good thing. Yeah. That faculty members can't be completely indifferent to the experience of students. It's just not a good thing the way this accountability has actually been uh, implemented. And so the question is, this will come up in the next session of my class on wisdom, is can you have standards without standardization? Hmm. And when you, when you have standards, but they aren't standardized, then you're worried that all kinds of bias will creep in. Right. So you want to be able to have a metric that you can point to and say, see, 4.8 course evaluation, 6.3 course evaluation. That's why we retained this person and we let this person go. Mm. So, uh, so there's a price you pay for having standards that actually come closer to getting at what you care about. Um, and the price you pay is that they are less obviously objective yeah. and less easy to defend than the superficial standards that we use precisely because they're, they're, you have to defend their validity, but you don't have to defend yourself against mm-hmm. being biased in your assessment. It's, um, a, it's so, a remarkable situation, and I, I think you've diagnosed the problem really well. I've, I've taught uh, statistics most of the time at, at UC Berkeley, um, and I, um, one of the professors who teaches it is you know, incredibly popular um, really bends over backwards to accommodate uh, any any request from any student. I, even one semester, um, really, there was no late penalties at all, like in the entire course. And um, the the problem with that is, like, uh, we get to the end of the semester, and the GSIs want to move on with our lives, and we have uh, assignments coming in. So actually, like, uh, the professor even said, okay. This 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 date. Anything that comes in after that date, I'll grade. Hmm. And um, so then, of course, a bunch of assignments came in after that date. And then this professor had the nerve to ask us as GSIs, "Oh, could you could you just grade just grade them for?" And I said, "No." I was like, "Nah, mate. You you created this. Uh, you you are going to do what you said you were going to do." Yeah. But interestingly, no, there's no check ever that the kids learnt statistics like there's absolutely no accountability for actually giving them skills to do data analysis correctly like no, it's no. In, in so obvious problem but what do we what can we do like what how does that get better like what what do how can we actually change this what would you do if if you were uh, vice chancellor of Eric? well you need to worry more about the you know whether the the assessment tool you're using is actually assessing what matters. And even if that's more difficult to administer and more open to claims that subject your evaluation is subjective, it's worth it. Um, But I think the main thing, and I argued this at Swarthmore and I I got nowhere uh, arguing for it. I said, you know, if we really care about how good a teacher is, we should be asking students to do course evaluations five years after they took the course. That's interesting. You know, there's no reason to take seriously what they have to say right after the course is over. Despite their best efforts, they're not in a position to judge. Mm-hmm. What you want to know is not what, you know, it's like, was this good marijuana? Well, let me see. It made <laughs> me feel great for 15 minutes. 
and then it went away. So if a course makes you feel smart as hell and great, you know, for a week, and then it goes away, what an incredible waste of, of resources, mm. you know? So the question is, does it have anything that lingers? And you can't assess that by asking people on the last day of class. You gotta ask them after some time has gone by, after they've had other experiences. But, you know, I, but Barry, I, I, do you I, think I, five years down the line, people would be able to remember? I mean, people don't even remember. I have the, the amount of times I have to reintroduce myself to people after having hour-long <laughs> conversations with them. I understand that there are there are trade-offs here. They will have they, they will have less a more of a, a sort of hazy right. memory. Yeah, just a and feeling. they may be yeah. and they may be inaccurate in saying you know this microeconomics course changed the way I right. think about everything. They may believe that, and it may not actually be true. Right. But at least there's a chance when they have had some perspective on what they've learned that they can give you a report that's a reflection mm. of how, you know, what you care about is our courses changing people's lives. Mm. That's what matters, not our courses putting facts in people's heads that they can spit back for 20 minutes and then lose. Are they changing people's lives? Are they changing how people interact with one another? Are they changing the paths that people take? Right. Uh, are they, ch they changing sort of fundamental notions about what society should be like? What's worth knowing? These are the kinds of things you want to know about. And five years is kind of arbitrary, you yeah. know? Better is twenty years, <laughs> but um, but the point is that we we it's not so much that the course evaluations don't tell us what we need to know; it's that we pretend that they do tell us what we need to know. Hmm. Huge uh, right. huge risk though, because I already get like I don't know ten out of forty students actually filling those things in. So I know. if yeah. it's five years later, it could just be that one student that <laughs> I really hated my guts. I <laughs> understand they that. have one hundred percent say. Over so my here's an interesting thing so, about about Swarthmore. Swarthmore, which ostensibly cares a lot about teaching, since it's a liberal arts college, there's no required course evaluation. Hmm. It's up to the individual teacher. When you come up for tenure, they send letters to 60 students. Randomly? No, no. You, 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 you provide half, your chair provides half, mm. students who got high grades, students who got low grades, students mm. who are current, students from some years before, students who are majors, students who are non-majors, students in introductory courses. Mm. They try to sample the waterfront. But they want narrative accounts. They, they are not asking you to fill out a checklist. They are asking you to write a letter about 60. Wow. And they get, the students take these things extremely seriously. They have to be nagged sometimes, you know, reminders. But they write, some cases, really long letters with very specific experiences they had to justify whatever you know evaluation that they're giving and then the committee that evaluates people for tenure scrutinizes these letters like they're reading talmudic texts <laughs> it's just unbelievable like i would get called in as a chair when somebody was up and they'd say you know this the student said he, he he's not very responsive to criticism hmm. what do you think that's about you know this is one student in 60. <laughs> What what do you think that's about? Is that something we should be worrying about? Blah blah blah. So, 
So it's a system. Does it does it work? Of course, it doesn't work perfectly. People get tenure who shouldn't. People get denied tenure who should get tenure. Does it work better than simply promoting the people who get sevens on their course evaluations? Unequivocally, it does. Interesting. You know, yeah. hard asses get tenure. Yeah. <laughs> and partly because people who took the organic chemistry can say two, three years later, what a profound inf- impact that that really hard course had on how they understand almost everything. So, yeah. so perseverance so, is important. So the next one, uh, my favorite <laughs> of all the uh, intellectual virtues, but also your shortest paragraph, courage. Yes. And so this actually ties with what we were talking about because I was going to ask a question like, how do you change a system without reifying it, right? Like, I mean, for example, people keep saying, oh, publish and perish, we should get rid of it, people should publish less. And then you're like, oh, but, you know, in order to be in a position to make those changes, you need to get a job. And so when you want to go to a job, they're like, oh, but how much have you published, right? And so it takes courage to stand up and be in a position where you can actually make change happen, but how do you get to that position? Well, you know. it takes a certain amount of courage right. to, um, to win the game playing by a certain set of rules and then say these are the wrong rules they need to be changed so it, you're not going to change these rules as graduate students or assistant professors the rule changing has to come from the full professors and the deans and the granting agencies and the journal editors who stop looking at how long your CV is that, that literally becomes irrelevant. In fact, arguably, it becomes invisible. Your CV is your three best papers as judged by you. And it doesn't matter whether this is three out of 30 or three out of 300 or three out of three. The question is, how good is your work when you're doing your work at its best? And that eliminates the incentive to be a, you know, a goddamn uh, pro- productivity machine. Now, you're not going to make that happen until you're in a position until you have won the game being played by current rules right. but you've got people people who I you know at, at, at Haas people who are concerned about replicability um, surely are understand that the incentive structure is in the discipline is exactly the opposite of what it should be and they think that if you do open science type things um, you know you police on a on a study by study basis, you can change the incentive structure because people who don't do science the right way won't get their papers published. That's, you know, that certainly will help. But as long as the incentive structure about who succeeds in the field and who doesn't remains the same, it's like water always finding a crack. One way or another, people will find ways to game whatever system you put in place. If the incentive structure is is unchanged, but the standards of what counts as a contribution get get you know modified based on the the bad practices of people in the field, and so uh, it seems to me um, pre-registration uh, and stuff like that is a, a, a progress. But it's you know you're you're swatting gnats and you're leaving the the elephant alone and there's no reason on earth not to change the incentive structure. Um, 
The, yeah, well, once you have tenure, yeah. Like, <laughs> no, no, of course. Why, why it has still, to be, it still has to be people. No, you're mm. not going to do it. It has to be people who have won the, you know, won the game playing by the old rules. Who changed the rules. Here's the, here's the thing. I, I, we talk a lot about incentive structures and how we need to change them. And I'm totally on board. Like, I think I'm totally on board that there's bad incentives right now and we need to change them. But I think the bigger issue is that there are a lot of people that are motivated by incentives and not doing the right thing for the right reason, right? I think the people who have the courage to stand up and say, hey, what this is, this is, this is happening, this is not right, are not the people who are like, oh, how is this going to affect my job and how is this going to affect my you know, reputation and how is this going to affect, right? It's people who, the people who have the courage to stand up and to say that something is wrong are the people who you know, will sort of stand by their principles and, and, and are not affected by the incentives as much that, that, I, uh, that may be true uh, when i when i talk about courage in the article it's not even in that sense it's really what i had in mind is you need the courage to say what you think is true even if you and other people wish it weren't true the world doesn't necessarily reveal itself in exactly the way you hope it will right there are unpleasant truths, and you need not only to face them if you discover them, but then to be willing to say them, knowing that you're, you know, all kinds of abuse will come down around your, uh, around your shoulders for saying, um, you know. I, I mean, the recent retractions I, are a great example. There are certain papers that recently came out that were publicly retracted. One found a really like was positing a relationship between like IQ, national IQ, and religiosity. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The recent one that came out about mentorship and how you know female mentorship might affect, right? I mean, the, now there might be faults with the papers. That's definitely true. But I, I, there's a lot of people that were just like not willing to look at the papers and wanted them out of you know wanted them retracted because they just didn't like the conclusions or didn't agree with you know where it might what conclusions it might lead other people to make yep um, and you know that happens the example that came up earlier in our conversation about whether uh, you know intelligence is genetic right right you know people who hang out around berkeley no you know nobody wants that to be true right yeah uh, yeah but you're not doing a favor to anybody if it is true and you have reason to think it's true and you hide that and we bang our heads against the wall trying to fix something that we can't fix right. using the tools we're using. So you say what you think is true and everybody attacks you, but it takes sometimes, it takes courage to tell the world unpleasant things that you, along with the people you're telling, wish weren't true, right. but are. So, so that's the kind, that's the sense in which I meant um, you have to be courageous. The truth is not always pleasant. And, uh, and sometimes we have to be willing to say unpleasant No, I, I, things. I, I agree. And, you know, we've talked about this a lot in this podcast. Um, yeah. This, uh, yeah. Uh, it can be scary uh, to um, say things that you think are true, but you you know are, are going to be unpopular. And, and it's um, true when you're interacting with students, you know, an mm. advisor and a graduate student, and you you're an advisor and you think you know you're just you just don't have what it takes. You need to find another path. Nobody wants to have that conversation. Right. You sort of help the graduate student limp through, knowing that what awaits this person later on is not going to be pleasant, 
but it will be somebody else's problem. So you avoid the unpleasant conversation and you basically kick the can down, down the road to the po- postdoc supervisor who will say, you know, you really don't have what it takes. <laughs> or, you know, it's so, so a, a lot of the time it takes courage to tell the people we care about and the people who care about us unpleasant things. Mm. You know, about their substance abuse. It's not just recreational anymore, kiddo. You got to do something about this. Nobody wants to have that conversation. Right. Mm. But I guess, Barry, the question then becomes is like, even when you start, so I've had like some really unpleasant interactions recently because there were, we were asked to read some papers that I just thought had these blatant flaws in them that I pointed out. And they were sort of, you know, they were talking about like racial topics. And I guess people, didn't like that but i guess the question it to me like the conversation what people tend to do is they pivot it to values and the implication is that oh because you're challenging this thing you must have bad values and you just don't want diversity right i can see the same thing where if you're telling a student hey i just don't think you have it what it takes if they don't trust your intentions right if they saying oh this this person just hates me and doesn't yeah. want me to succeed right so yeah what do you do with that like what, what how do you yeah well, you have courage. Uh, look, listen, I, I didn't say any of this was easy. <laughs> it is not easy. Right. Uh, it is hard. And, and yes, if, you're, if you are insistent that people take a certain argument in, in a paper seriously, it's not hard to imagine that you'll be accused of having the values that somebody who, uh, who readily accepted the conclusion of that paper might have. Right. And, you know, you can bang your fist and say, listen, I want as much as you do for this not to be true. But it is. I wish it weren't. How can we find a way to overcome this truth so that everybody who wants to be a mathematician can be a mathematician, no matter what chromosomes they have? You know, you don't get to ask that question without acknowledging that there are constraints within which you're operating and and you immediately get accused everything is made personal yeah. everything and but i think this is a reflection of a kind of cynicism about truth and the and the love of truth that has already pervaded there's no explanation for you arguing the merits of this paper except that it's consistent with your values why else would you do it mm-hmm. you know and you say no it's not consistent with my values but it's true, right. you know. Yeah. What does that mean? <laughs> so I think it's already a sign that this is an uphill battle. And I have bad news for you mm-hmm. guys. I'm going to have to stop. Yeah. Okay. I don't know how long you mean. Uh, I assume you don't mean these things to go on until spring. <laughs> no, I <laughs> don't. Um, I know I'm a very interesting person, but I'm not that interesting. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Do you have a question? Because I do want to ask. There's one question I'm dying to ask, but I well, I don't know. The the I, I was gonna like get into virtue ethics versus consequentialism. I think that when you get to wisdom and you get to this part where yeah, all these virtues conflict, and then you just have to do the wise thing. It's totally question begging, and ultimately you're gonna have to rely on some form of consequentialism. I've never understood virtue ethics i've always thought that it ultimately it gets to this hand wavy question begging thing where we all do so i was gonna ask you 
a train is speeding down the tracks, you can divert it. It's heading towards. Oh. It's going to run over one person. It's going. Oh, you can. Oh, you can oh, divert oh. it. It's going to run over the five trolley people. Problem? What, what, what is what, the wise? What's the wise thing to do, Barry? And why? I don't know the answer to that. <laughs> and I and I don't want to suggest that consequential that consequences don't matter. Of course, consequences matter. What what bothers me about consequentialism is that there's an implicit standard that can be imposed that so that there there is there are units of evaluation that cross the different the different categories that your spreadsheet is trying to capture. And so the notion behind wisdom is you want to do the right thing at the right time for the right reason. And that the right thing and the right reason may be peculiar to this situation. But the question of what makes it the right thing is almost certainly consequentialist. But the notion that you can take this and put it into a spreadsheet and then array other decisions and extract the underlying metric, and that seems to me to be inherent in consequentialism. And I think that's really highly problematic. Uh, and so the thing about about you know wisdom, you know Aristotle said it's not like there are wise people, there are wise teachers, there are wise stonemasons, there are wise parents. So wisdom is very much domain specific, mm-hmm. and the idea that you're wise in one domain doesn't mean that you are wise in general. We all know, or have had, most of many of us know people who are wonderful as in their professional role as a doctor and a nightmare when they go home at, you know they can't deal with their family in the way they seem effortlessly to deal with their patients so you know are these wise people no they're wise doctors who are in other circumstances incredibly thick right. so but this is a longer conversation yeah, yeah, yeah. i'll yeah. take it you like the the quote that uh the the thing that is the right to do will ultimately be about consequences I'll take that. I'll take, like, as right. a consequentialist, I'm like, okay, okay. good enough. We'll have good you enough. on enough. again to talk we'll, about we'll it. We'll iron out the details later, but it's all okay. about consequences. So. But I do want to ask... When we're back to in-person interactions, we can sit in the courtyard <laughs> and debate this over that sounds something great. from Cafe Think. Yeah, nice. But I do want to ask, Barry, so since the central argument in the paper that you see, like, you're making is that science and scholarship are really what like sort of allow us to build these virtues intellectual virtues um in students right and people that, that they sort of embody these virtues but then in this class that you're letting me audit um you also mentioned and i quote one of the first things that graduate well science is mostly research right and so you're saying one of the first things that graduate students learn is that there is nothing exciting about doing research that the many tasks <laughs> that are involved in doing research are so far removed from the big questions that got you interested in the first place that you often ask yourself, why am I doing this? I mean, why would anybody with a double-digit IQ spend their time doing what I am doing? <laughs> you, you, did, you did not like that when I said it. <laughs> I did not like it. I emailed very after it, and I shared um, this comic that I really like from Cyanide and Happiness, which says, you know, I mean, yeah, the big flashy things in science are great, but it's really, I think, this is what comes down to perseverance. And as we talked about excellence, right? Like, nobody will look at, like, look behind your back to make sure that you've coded everything correctly or you've double-checked how you've no. done things, right? Like, you need to be able to do that because you care about doing it. I think it does come down to like the nitty gritty of it, right? I personally really enjoy that nitty gritty. I wonder what. No, no, no. But that's a different thing. So, so you know, having a commitment 
to the virtue of truth right. means that you're going to be as careful as you can be right. in doing these yes. things, even if you find them totally obnoxious. Unpleasant, yeah, yeah. Uh, so, you know, my wife spent her career as a neuro, neuropsychologist. Uh -huh. Nothing got her more excited than getting a set of data yeah. to go through. Thanks. You know, she would, she would open up the spreadsheet uh -huh. and time would disappear. <laughs> and five hours later, I'd say, it's dinner time. And so, you know, she, yes, she was meticulous, uh, but she loved it. Right. And for me, this was always a means to an end. It was the stuff that you had to do in order to be respectable right. uh, as a truth seeker, but I got no pleasure from mm -hmm. it at all. But yeah. I was conscientious enough that I sort of did it the best that I could, but she just loved it. Right. And and what I was trying to communicate, and, and it was inconsistent with what Angela was saying about having goal hierarchies, right. is that if you care about discovering big truths, you have to be willing to persevere right. in these things. If you care about being the best basketball player who ever lived, you have to be willing to do squats right. and run on a treadmill and do the various other things yeah. that these basketball players do. Right. Whether they get pleasure from it or, or not, not. I mean, is yeah. beside the point. And Who is that budding wise person? <laughs> okay, so new guest to the podcast. This is Hugo. I'm trying to get him to say something into the mic. Hugo. Did, you, uh, did you name him after the science fiction literary award? No, oh. no, actually, no. We named him after my wife's brother. I see. Hugo. Well, okay. I really, I, I really got to go. Yeah, no, thank okay. you, Barry. Thanks so much for chatting with us. Um, thank you for being on the show, and hopefully we'll have you, yeah. I'll be happy to come back anytime. That'll it's be... really been a pleasure. You ask challenging, provocative, and fruitful questions. What more could you ask right. for? <laughs> thank you, Barry. Take See care. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.